This time we're going to turn once again to the book of Mark in chapter 4. Be reading verses 21 through the end of the chapter. We had a sermon last week on verses 21 through 23 about the candle lamp. Children had a chapel speech at school about the parable of the measure of the measuring measure, verses 24 through 25. This evening our sermon will be verses 35 through 41 at the end of chapter 4. We begin the reading of God's word at verse 21 of Mark chapter 4. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given, and he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples." Now the words of our text this evening. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was, in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said unto them, 
Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus far we read God's word. May he bless us in the reading of Scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 4 deals a lot with the word of God, the sowing of that word, the power of that word, listening to that word, the miraculous growth of that word in the child of God, and how that word becomes manifest in the earth as the parable of the mustard seed shows. And the Lord in this passage at the end of chapter 4 answers this question regarding that word. What is the extent of the power of that word of Jesus Christ? How powerful is the word of God? You'll recall that the disciples called Jesus Master or Teacher. And certainly as the Son of God, He is the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Him are hid all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He is the Word. And as Christ, He is the prophet of Jehovah, sent by God to reveal that Word and to reveal the glory of God, that he is the triune God, the covenant God, he is Father. Christ is sent as the revelation of the Father in his glory, in his works, in his purpose for the salvation of the church. And the question is then, is that true, which the disciples often called him, is Jesus merely master, merely teacher? Jesus, by his action and with just a very few words, which is common in the book of Mark, reveals very clearly the truth about the power of his word. That word, or as Mark also explains it, the doctrine of Jesus Christ that has the power to deliver God's people from the bondage of the devil. It has the power to forgive our sin. It has the power to, as we see earlier in the book of Mark and then in chapter 5, power to raise from the dead his people. He has the power to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, To make those, according in chapter 5, with the lady with the internal bleeding, to heal her by the power of his word. He is the Lord. Mark also has demonstrated that that doctrine of Christ, that word of Christ, does have the power also to harden. There were those who rejected Christ rejected his anointing, which is the Holy Spirit. And Christ had to defend his anointing and the anointing of the, of the apostles, the Spirit, from those who were his enemies. 
He had to defend his truth from those who rejected his authority, rejected the truth that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And as Jesus continued to preach and to do his miracles and to teach his parables, they were further hardened in their enmity and rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, before those enemies, will the word of Jesus Christ, will the word of the prophet of Jehovah, will it succeed in building his church? Will it succeed in preserving his church unto the end when he shall come again? Does that word have power in you personally to work in you a true faith by the Spirit and to preserve you and protect you from all spiritual evil and keep you unto that day when you shall see him face to face? Will that word which the sower has put upon your regenerated heart, will that word be overcome by the sin of our old nature, by the cares of this world, and all the enemies that assault us day after day after day? Can this word save you and preserve you in the faith which God has given you through the storms of this life through which you must pass. This text, beloved, answers very emphatically that question for our comfort, for our encouragement, and when we do and behave as the disciples did for our admonition and rebuke. Let's consider then the truth of the text under this theme, stilling the stormy seas. Stilling the stormy seas. Well, notice, first of all, Jesus' sovereign word displayed. And secondly, our shameful unbelief exposed. And then thirdly, the great peace received. What happened in the text? What's the story here? Jesus and his disciples had departed from Galilee on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. They were headed by boat to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this voyage began on a day when Jesus had been engaged in much teaching and work and faithfulness to the Father. He had defended the anointing of his disciples by those who blasphemed the Holy Spirit he had answered the request of his brethren to see them, and he said, No, these are my brethren, this is my mother, those who are part of this family of God. That's the supreme blood tie in the kingdom of heaven. In response to the situation, he also taught in many parables. And when all of that was finished, he says to his disciples in verse 35, let us pass over unto the other side. There's work to be done now over there. And we learn that after all of that work, Jesus was exhausted. 
That condition is implied in verse 36 in that little phrase, even as he was. Even as he was, the disciples received him into the ship. Well, how was he? Well, even as he was indicates that he had been busy. He had given of himself physically, spiritually, to the work of his preaching labors as the faithful prophet of Jehovah. Thus, when he entered into the ship, went to the back of the boat, laid down, took the pillow, put his head down, and fell asleep. We also learn in verse 36 that this ship or boat was not alone. There were other little ships that went with him. Read there, and there were also with him other little ships that included not just then, we understand the 12 disciples called by Christ to that work of apostles, but the larger group of disciples which also followed him. They experienced what happens in the text. They also see what Christ reveals in this event. Not long after they depart the shore on the western, northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, a great storm arose upon the sea. A storm which we would describe as something like a hurricane. The wind accelerated down the slopes of the Sea of Galilee, pushed the water into giant waves, and beat against the ships, especially the ship into it in which Jesus and his disciples were found. The apostles who had been very experienced fishermen had never experienced this kind of storm. Most storms they could, if the water would be coming coming into the ship, they could get some kind of instrument and scoop the water out, start bailing out the water so that the ship would not sink. But this was not possible. As much as they rowed and tried to get the right angle on the waves, or perhaps kept bailing out the water from the bottom of the boat, it did not help. In a short time, the ship was now full, implying that the very next wave over the side would sink the ship to the bottom of the sea. And what's astounding is, while all of this howling wind and noise is going about in the ship, there is Jesus at the back of the boat, asleep, sound asleep. When all hope is lost from the viewpoint of the disciples, they awaken Jesus. And from a certain point of view, at the very least, the apostles did turn in the right direction. They turned to Jesus in their distress. They did not cry out to some false god like Baal, They did not curse God for their crisis. They turned to Jesus. Yet when they awakened him, what they said was not good. They yelled at him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? In other words, art thou not the prophet? Thou art not behaving so. If he were the prophet of Jehovah, he would know what situation they were in. He would know what to do. And they would not have come into this crisis where surely the next wave will sink the boat. 
Jesus immediately stands up in the boat, very calmly, saying very little. While the water is sloshing around in the boats, the soggy disciples with wide-eyed terror look upon him. Jesus faces the wind and says, Peace, be still. And instantly, that is exactly what happens. As Jesus spoke, the wind ceases, the waves are finished. Verse 39, we read, there was a great calm. In other words, from what was the storm to what happened after Jesus spoke was great. Beyond the comprehension of the disciples in the boat with Jesus and those that were in the other little ships in that armada that was crossing the sea. And then Jesus, in that same great control and calm in the storm, turns to his disciples and says to them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And then in verse 41 we read, And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, A very important question need to consider what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him well beloved what is the answer to that question the answer is first of all this man is Jesus Christ the son of God who is the word over the the sea and, and the wind They stood afraid of the storm. But Jesus stands unafraid of the storm. He does not bend in terror. He was not surprised. Though standing up to his ankles in water or perhaps knees in water, he stands in his sovereignty, spiritually over the wind and the waves, just as he did over the devils whom he cast out of others earlier in the book of Mark. He stands there as Lord. The Lord who even brought the disciples into the storm. So that, yes, he is God, the Son of God. He has the name of God. He possesses the divine nature of God, which he reveals to them at that moment. He is that son of God in the flesh, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, to reveal the glory of God, to show that God is sovereign. He is almighty in a very dramatic way when he calms the sea and the wind. But secondly, beloved, what manner of man is this? Yes, the Son of God, first of all, but number two, the Son of God in the flesh, in his humiliation. Let's not overlook that as well. His lordly glory flashes out for just a moment. Instantly, the wind stops. The waves are gone which no mere man could possibly ever do. Yet that 
glory which comes out is just a moment. It's brief. Because that Jesus stands in the boat as the one to be awakened, the one who still needed to eat, the one who still needed to travel from where they were in the Sea of Galilee to the shore. Yes, he could have walked. He could have made the ship come to the shore, which he does in another miracle later, Mark chapter 6. But here, no. He stands before them, yes, as the Son of God, but also as the man, Jesus Christ. He remained wet and drenched and damp. Well, the disciples may have bailed out the boat a little more, and they rowed the rest of the way to the shore. This is Jesus. God in the flesh, in the state of humiliation, on the way to the cross of Calvary. And in that way, he must wear the coat of the curse because of our sin. And although he is the Son of God, and although it is clear, yes, this is the Son of David, the Lord of glory, yet that's the atonement for us, for Israel. He is the one who, as the Son of God, is determined to merit our righteousness, all of our righteousness, for our justification and earn for us the life he will give and does give to us and work in us by his Holy Spirit. And to establish that and to earn that salvation for us, he is determined. He will go through a storm which you and I must never pass through. He will go through the storm, the infinite storm of God's wrath, and receive all of that wind of God's buffeting billows to save us from our sin and the curse which we deserve for that sin. To that storm through which Jesus passed and received and finished completely. Because of that, there is no storm through which the church must pass which will ever compare. Because of Jesus, who stands in the boat with the disciples on that road of humiliation to the cross and to the resurrection and then to the right hand of God. This is the Jesus who stands in the boat with his drenched and distressed disciples. But that, beloved, is the same Jesus who stands with you in the stormy seas of this life. He stands with you, of course, differently. He is with you as the exalted Lord who is at God's right hand. And you say, well, how can he... He is there in his human nature, but I'm here in this storm in life. He is with us by his Holy Spirit, closer than he could ever possibly be physically. And he is with us as the Lord who has finished our redemption in his death on the cross and has obtained immortality and glory for us completely by his Holy Spirit works that salvation in you and me by his grace. That Jesus 
with you and me, is sovereign over all things in your life. Everything. Yes, in the work of salvation, for sure. Sovereign to open your heart so that he might establish in you his life and glory. Sovereign to work in you true repentance from your sin and that true and living faith in him which brings forth fruit of thankfulness to him. And he is sovereign over everything in your life, even the enemies which assault you day after day with temptations and who seek to destroy you and destroy the church of Jesus Christ and the rule of Christ in us by his word and spirit. But he is sovereign over them too. And his word will accomplish its saving purpose all those whom God has ordained to eternal life will even accomplish his saving purpose in those who for a time might reject the word and go wayward and into a sinful way. And if we would go and we go into sin as the lost sheep, he is the Lord of his sheep, he will bring us to repentance. He will humble us through his chastising ways so that we might be saved. That's the Jesus, beloved, who stands with you in the stormy seas. Absolutely. Whether we know that or see that or not, that's a different matter, but that is the Christ who is with us. Since that is true, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Yes, we would say that's true. There are many stormy seas through which we must pass in life. The church faces persecution. You can read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and read of some of the persecution that our fellow saints have endured in the Roman Empire. Other times in church history, tremendous storms, grievous persecution. God's people go through a storm of poverty, financial hardship, but sometimes poverty because they live in a country that is hostile to the Reformed faith, hostile to the Word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, they suffer. Their houses are burned down. Their church buildings are ruined. They may lose their job. They may even lose their lives. The church endures pestilence, especially as the day of Christ comes quickly. Signs of the calamity in creation continue to increase in intensity and in frequency. There are storms of temptation in life where the world bombards us with temptation to forsake Christ, our Lord, and to go the way of fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. There are storms of sickness, of cancer, storms of chronic disease. that will be with some of God's saints all the days of their earthly pilgrimage. 
There are the storms of loneliness because of the death of a spouse or children. There are storms of controversy in the church over doctrine, other issues. Storms over the truth, over against apostasy on the one hand or radicalism on the other hand. Storms which cut through congregations, through families, through marriages, through friendships. And we're tempted at the height of those storms to do exactly what the disciples did. Master, carest thou not that we perish? And the disciples surely thought they had a reason for that accusation. They were about to drown and to perish. They could see it. There comes the next wave. As soon as that's over the side, we're done. It's over. Perhaps they were, to a degree, concerned about Jesus and his ministry, worried maybe that it would end at the bottom of the sea. But whatever the case may be, they assumed Jesus did not know and thus, he is not the faithful prophet of Jehovah. He does not know that through which some of his sheep are passing. His apostles. And he, as a result, according to what he was doing, he didn't care, they thought. They had proof. There's the next wave. Jesus is sleeping. Master, thou dost not care that we perish. So we may also likewise accuse the Lord in the storms of life. Now we may not accuse him face to face and say that in prayer to him, we're not perhaps that bold. But we will take that out on our loved ones and those closest to us. Become frustrated with the storm that the Lord has sent us into all the aspects of that storm that wear us out spiritually, then we become spiritually crabby to those around us, frustrated. We'll take it out on them. Our prayer life suffers. And when the storm remains, God doesn't take the storm away. It lingers, it continues, or it has lasting consequences. We lash out. Master, carest thou not that we perish? And what we're doing is we're calling Jesus down from God's throne at God's right hand and saying, now you must answer my questions. I demand accountability to me because things aren't going my way according to my will and my wisdom. And we might even think, well, the disciples had Jesus in the boat but we have even a greater reason to be like the disciples. Christ is in heaven at God's right hand. We are down here on the earth. It appears outwardly he doesn't care. He doesn't care that I suffer persecution, the saints may declare, or all kinds of oppression or evil at the hands of wicked men or sickness or pain or that I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. And 
We reason if he did care, then he would take these things away instantly. So, like the disciples, we question his righteousness. We question his sovereignty. We question his wisdom. We question his timing. The Lord who stands in the boat with you in the storm looks at you and me in the eye and says, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith in me? How did that come about? No certain knowledge of my sure word, my doctrine? No assurance of the salvation which I have established and finished in my cross and sealed in the resurrection? Why are you tossed about to and fro by the troubles of this life like a ship that's lost its anchor? Beloved, we certainly deserve that, don't we? Why are you so distressed by the storms we wrestle against with our sin, the guilt of our sin, the troubles of this life, the consequences of our sin, many, many things. The reason is simple, as Jesus explains, to our shame. No faith. Now be careful, beloved. Jesus doesn't mean no faith in the absolute sense of the word because remember what he said to Peter in the book of Luke. Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Though a few hours later he would deny Christ three times. Faith there refers to that bond of faith. Christ in Christ. Christ engrafted Peter into him. And that bond of faith would never be broken. But the activity of faith certainly stopped in the night in which Peter betrayed the Lord. And that's what the Lord refers to here. Why have you stopped knowing and being assured of me, your Lord and Savior? Do you not know who I am? And that I am? Don't you remember what I have done for you? And what I continue to do for you? Because my mercy endures forever? Do you not remember pouring out my spirit upon you that he shall abide with you forever? And so I will abide with you forever? Do you not remember that my word by which I made the light in the beginning in all things in the beginning of creation that same word and more gloriously is able to save you from your sin 
through all of the storms of this life. And I am able to make those things serve your profit. Don't you remember that I make the bitter in this life by my work and my blood sweet for your good? Being honest, beloved, then we will answer, no, we didn't. We have forgotten. We don't trust in him as we should. We forget all of those things. We're impatient. We're impetuous like Peter, prone to stray. Me first, self And so whenever the storms come in life, we are prone to despondency, complaining, unchristian behavior, prone even to foolishly abandon ship. We deserve, beloved, every syllable of the Lord's rebuke. so that we may receive peace. That word of Christ, though a rebuke, is a necessary one to work in us the great calm that marvelously the Lord does work in his saints in the midst of the storms of this life. That's the calm, beloved, of peace with God through Jesus Christ alone. We should be condemned for our sin. We should be condemned for our accusations against the Lord. Lord, carest thou not that we perish? We say it in a question, but really we mean it as a statement. For that we deserve to be left to perish in our unbelief and sin. This is the call of being right with God. This is the calm knowing that God sees me, not in my unbelief and sin, but in Christ. My atonement, my righteousness, my sanctification, my wisdom, my redemption. And though I should be left in the darkness of my sin, given over to the storms of this life, this is the calm in which I know, and you know, and are taught to know also, that I have all things in this life in Christ as a blessing. God shall work all things together for my good, because he has judged me as right before him and worthy of his blessings in Christ Jesus. I know that for the sake of Christ, my Lord, every storm, even this storm in which you may be, works, works together for my good. That's a wonder, beloved. We as children growing up might think, well, that is an astonishing wonder. Just imagining being in the boat with Jesus and his disciples, and there it is in that stormy sea in the water, almost the boat full of water. We can imagine that, and Jesus standing up and the waves, and then they're gone. And we stand there amazed, astounded. 
beloved, more astounding is what happens when Jesus speaks to you. Peace, be still. That troubled soul, like the storm-tossed sea, by the power of his word, through his spirit, makes it calm. So that we may receive those storms in contentment and humility before the Lord and in the confession that I belong to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in body and soul. He is the captain of my soul, the captain of this ship. He controls the storms too. He will guide this ship through the storm. He's at the helm. His spirit fills the sails and will guide me exactly where I need to go in this life and at the right time accomplish his purpose perfectly. That's our safety in the storm. That's the food for our souls to to preserve us through them according to the Lord's purpose. We receive that calm, beloved, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And out of that faith, we enjoy that great calm in the paths of godliness. Not hurling accusations at the Lord, but by faith, trusting in him, obeying him, being humble before him, believing that by grace alone, not by our works, but by grace alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive that through faith, not the outward eyesight, we would do that, then we're like the disciples. Well, the next wave is going, to ship, is going to sink this soul. I'm done. I will perish. By faith, we look beyond the storm to the hand that moves those waves and holds you all the days of your life. And the hand which will never let you go, will never leave you, nor forsake you. Believe, beloved, Christ is the captain of your soul and the anchor of your soul, having bought you with his blood, possessing and living within you by his spirit. He will be with you in the boat forever until the storms are past and we arrive with our fellow saints at the harbor of rest. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, grant us thy grace to believe, to have that great calm and joy and thanksgiving, even in very painful, challenging, wearisome trials of this life and the storms. Thou dost send upon us. Grant us the grace to believe that thy word shall sustain us. Preserve us unto the end that thou hast prepared for us in the haven of rest, in glory with thee, our Lord Jesus Christ, the anchor of our souls. Keep us, Heavenly Father, young and older, thy covenant children, thy sheep and thy lambs. Keep us, Father, in thy hand. 
Preserve and keep us for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.